You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to start today by sharing with you a trailer for a history podcast called Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World by Devin Field. I normally don't do this two weeks in a row, but this podcast is relevant to our current series, so I decided to do so. Human Circus is about travelers in the medieval world, just as it says. And that means we get all sorts of great stories that are not so different from what we do on the Explorers Podcast. This includes Devin's own take on Marco Polo. And since this is our final Marco Polo episode, I thought it appropriate to share it with you at this time. So here you go, Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World. It is an independently produced history podcast, well-researched and put together by a passionate host. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Devin, writer and host of Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast where we follow medieval history through the stories of its travelers. There are Franciscan monks going overland to visit the Mongols, Florentine silk merchants at the Sultan's court in Cairo, Abbasid envoys observing Viking funerals, and a medieval bestseller, an English knight who perhaps didn't exist at all. There's Prester John, and there's dog-headed men, and there are accounts of the miraculous and the strange. For those stories and more, join me on Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the final episode in our series on Venetian explorer and merchant Marco Polo. So last time, we took Marco from Convalique down the Grand Canal and to the great and luxurious cities of Hangzhou and Quanzhou, a journey of at least 3,000 miles. Now, as we have discussed, Marco went all over China over the course of 17 years, much of it in the service of Kublai Khan, likely as a tax collector and or official in the salt trade but we do not know the specific years or even how many times he actually visited all these places, just that he went there. So today we are going to take Marco Polo on his final mission in the service of the Great Khan. This endeavor will lead us to all sorts of far-off places, including Indonesia, India, Persia, and, eventually, Venice. Let us start by doing an update on Marco's world, circa 1290. At this time, the Polos had been in China for 15 years. During that stretch, Mongol armies had quelled rebellious Chinese elements 
as well as launched invasions of Japan and Vietnam and Burma. Also, the great Khan had dealt with a major rebellion when his troops had fought and defeated his own nephew, Nian, in 1287. And there were court intrigues and plots and schemes, standard stuff for a grand empire at this time and place. It was all part of the ever-changing Mongol world that Marco lived in. But probably the biggest change to Marco's world was the fact that his benefactor and mentor, the great Kublai Khan, was getting old. The once mighty Mongol warrior was about 75 years old, and he was overweight and suffering from depression. The writing was on the wall, and people were positioning themselves for what would happen when the Khan died. And this included the Polo family. They knew that any transition of power was fraught with danger. Regime change meant sweeping away the old, and that often included those loyal to the previous ruler. And the Polos were very much linked to Kublai Khan. And as Marco points out, many at court did not like him as he was a favorite of the emperor. So with the emperor aging and their time at court now approaching 15 years, the Polos began to plot a return to Venice. Marco would have been in his mid-30s at this time. His uncle and father were around 60 or so. They had all the wealth that they could imagine, with Marco saying they found themselves, quote, very rich in jewels of great value and in gold, end quote. Thus, with their pockets filled and the con aging, the Polo family just wanted to go home after so many years abroad. However, leaving was not a simple thing. When you entered the service of the great Khan, well, as far as he was concerned, that was forever. So when the Polos went to the Khan and asked for his leave, it was refused. The Khan liked his Latin servants. They were unique and entertaining. He denied the request to head home, instead telling them that they could go anywhere within his realm, but they could not leave. Niccolo Polo appealed to the emperor, saying that he had a wife in Venice and that it was against his religion to abandon her for so long. But that would not be enough. To the Khan, they were bound to him for life. Thus, the Polos waited. An opportunity would finally present itself to leave in 1291, and it surrounded a 17-year-old princess named Kokachin. But let's back up a few years and a few thousand miles and explain. In the Middle East, there was a region called the Ilkhanate. This was a Mongol-ruled kingdom in what is now modern-day Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran. Many people just called it Persia, as it pretty much equated to the area previously associated with Persian rule. The Ilkhanate had once been governed by Hulagu Khan, who we mentioned earlier in this series. It was now ruled by Argon, the grandson of Hulagu. The Ilkhanate was technically part of the Greater Mongol Empire, but for the most part, it was an independent political entity. But that did not mean that the Great Khan did not hold some sway in the region and this would come into play in 1287 when Argon's wife, Bolgana, died. There was the desire that Argon's new wife be of the same lineage as Bolgana, and thus Argon sent emissaries to the Great Khan to request such a woman and send her back to Persia to be his new bride. And so these emissaries did arrive in Kambalik and put their request to the Great Khan. And that gets us to Kokachin, a 17-year-old princess who was of the same lineage of the late Bolgana. Thus, Kublai Khan sent the young woman back to Persia to be Argon's new bride. The princess's entourage would set out overland, but after a short time, they would be forced back to Kanbalik as intertribal squabbles along the Silk Road had erupted into full-scale conflict, blocking their path. It was then decided that Kokachin would proceed to the Middle East via ship, and that is when the Polos enter the story. Marco says that he convinced the Khan that he and his family were expert sailors. That's a stretch, but not a total lie. The Polos had sailed for years in the Mediterranean, and they undoubtedly had a good knowledge of the sea and sailing. Plus, let us remember that Marco spoke Persian, which is where they were heading. So what better people to escort the princess to her new home in the Middle East than the three trusted men who spoke Persian, 
were well-versed in sailing, and wanted to go that way anyhow. It was perfect, and the Khan agreed, giving the mission a thumbs up. But Kublai Khan was not quite ready to give up the polos. Instead of just saying that they could go home at the end of their mission, he also designated the polos as his emissaries and instructed them to go to the great kingdoms of Europe as his personal representative once they had deposited Kokachin in Persia. He then had the polos promise to return to him once the mission was complete. Marco and his family would agree to these terms, but let's be honest, they had no intention of returning to China. Once they got home, they were there to stay. And thus, in 1292, Princess Kokachin, escorted by the Polo clan, prepared to depart for the lands of Persia. For the journey, the Khan issued the Polo's new paisas, Mongol passports giving Marco and his family safe passage throughout the realm. Marco said that they were, quote, two tablets of gold sealed with the royal seal with orders, written thereon that they should be free and exempt from every burden and secure through all his lands, end quote. The Khan also gave letters to the Polos to be delivered to the Pope as well as the kings of France, Spain, England, and other monarchs. He then presented the Polos with gifts of gold, rubies, and other jewels, a fortune to add to their already considerable wealth. Before their departure, the Khan held a great celebration, honoring his Latin guests and their many years of loyal service to him. It was a grand affair, and Marco says that the Khan was deeply saddened to see the Polos leaving him. In truth, Kublai Khan had offered the Polos unique access to an exclusive world. They had been able to operate at the highest levels of one of the greatest empires to ever exist on this planet. It had been an extraordinary opportunity and an amazing experience. For Marco, the Khan had been this legendary warrior and leader, but he'd also been a sort of father figure who had nurtured him from a 21-year-old kid into a man of untold experience. And let's be honest, what Marco had experienced, Kublai Khan, the Mongol world, Khanbalik, China, and so much more, had been a revelation beyond anything he could have imagined. So, while the Khan was saddened to be losing his Latin agents, the Polos were indebted to the man for so much. Now, regarding the job of escorting this princess to her new husband, if you think this is going to be a quick ocean voyage to Persia, you are very, very wrong. Because setting off for the Middle East does not mean it will be quick or easy. But before we get started, you should know that, like so many other things about the world of Kublai Khan, this final mission will be a massive and opulent affair. This endeavor would consist of a fleet of ships, 14 in total, some with four masts and dozens of sails. Four or five of these were huge, with crews of 250 to 300 sailors. Marco's ship was a passenger vessel and had 60 cabins. He said that there were 600 passengers in the fleet, which did not count thousands of sailors. The Chinese ships, by the way, were bigger and better compared to just about anything in the world. Marco describes them in depth, and they are impressive, and not just for their size. These ships were wooden, and their hulls had two layers of planking, hammered together with iron nails. The caulking was a mix of lime and chopped hemp, combined with an oil from a tree. Marco proclaims, quote, It is every bit as good as pitch, end quote. The multiple layers of planking and the outstanding caulking meant that there was almost no way that these ships would leak and the double planking made the ship strong and sturdy, and better able to withstand striking objects while at sea. When one of these ships needed maintenance, it would be brought to one of the Khan's great naval bases, where Chinese shipwrights would add another layer of planking to it. You could find ships with as many as six layers of planking before it was finally deemed unseaworthy and taken apart. These great ships had up to a dozen holds, and could carry five to six thousand baskets of pepper, and Marco said that the Chinese had even bigger ships, but they did not work very well, as they were too big and too heavy to enter many of the harbors of Asia. Now one thing I want to mention that is important about this mission 
is that it is actually something confirmed by historic sources, at least sort of. A chronicler from the era, Rashid al-Din, in 1307, wrote about three ambassadors who accompanied Princess Kokachin on a voyage to Persia. The polo's names are not specifically mentioned, but it all jibes with the information provided by Marco in his book. So it is off to the Middle East and home for the polos, finally. The aging Khan wept at their departure. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Polos would follow the Grand Canal to the south, reaching Hangzhou, the city of heaven, and then continuing on to Quanzhou, where the fleet awaited them. The ships would depart and sail along the Chinese coast to the southwest. By the way, as always, you can see a route of our travels on our website, explorerspodcast.com. I put a link in the show notes as well. Anyhow, along the Chinese coast and across the South China Sea went the Grand Fleet. Leaving the realm of the Mongol Empire, they would first come to Vietnam. Marco had visited Vietnam in our third episode. The kingdom was not a subject of the Mongols, but they did pay a tribute to them to maintain their independence. From Vietnam, the ships would have crossed the Gulf of Thailand and come to the Malay Peninsula, which is modern-day Malaysia. I want to note that going forward, until the fleet reaches Ormuz, these will likely be places that Marco had never visited, as none of the locations were subjects of the Mongol Empire. From there, the Polos would have sailed down the Malaysian coast and rounded the tip of the peninsula, which is modern-day Singapore, and then headed back north through the Malacca Strait, which separates Malaysia from the island of Sumatra. Now, this is a large area with many kingdoms. Marco sort of lumps them all as Indonesia, saying there were eight kingdoms here. He did not go to all of these places, but describes many of them, often talking about the craziest things that he had heard about each. In one place, he talks about the elephants and unicorns. Regarding the latter, he says, quote, It has the hair of the buffalo, it has the feet of the elephant, it has one horn in the middle of its forehead, very thick and black. End quote. What he was describing was probably the Sumatran or Javan rhino. In another place that he calls Bosman, he talks of monkeys with the faces of men. From his descriptions, he is probably talking about pygmies. Other people he encounters are described as cannibals. Once the fleet reached Sumatra, it halted its progress as the monsoon season arrived. This would force Marco and the fleet to spend five months on the island, and this time was not easy. Food was in short supply, and the camp on the island was always under threat from the local natives. Marco says that he took on the role of a leader at this time, leading the digging of trenches around the camp for protection. He adds that the fleet's personnel traded with the locals when possible, getting fish, which he proclaimed the best he'd ever had, as well as wine. After five months, the fleet would continue on through the Malacca Strait and into the Andaman Sea and then to the Bay of Bengal. We should note that life had been difficult for the sailors and the passengers. Marco doesn't go into many details, but talks in general of the hardships. Disease, malnutrition, and the weather had chipped away at the health of the men and the ships. Next, the fleet would have crossed the Bay of Bengal and reached Sri Lanka and India. Of Sri Lanka, or Ceylon as Marco calls it, he talks about the fine rubies found there, 
and the fact that the local king had spurred the great Khan when he had tried to acquire some of these fine gems. He also notes that the remains of Adam, that is, Adam from the Garden of Eden, were believed to rest on a mountain on the island. In India, the fleet would arrive at Mabar on the eastern coast, which he called the best part of India. Here, Marco goes into depth about the area and all of India in general. In fact, India is perhaps the one place that Marco really is fascinated by on this return voyage. Here, he found an incredibly rich, vibrant, and ancient culture, and it enthralled him. In Mabar, he talked about the people who go around almost completely naked and are experts at harvesting pearls. He describes their ceremonies and customs, and of course, if there is sexual stuff to discuss, he does so, and he describes how the king had 500 wives. In India, he goes on about another of his favorite subjects, religion. Here he found Buddhist traditions that were older than he encountered in China and Mongolia. Here there was less of the magic and shamanism common in the north. Marco goes into great detail about Buddhism and draws many parallels to Christianity. In fact, he praises the original divine Buddha, who he calls Sagamoni Burkhan, as a holy and great man, saying, quote, For truly, if he had been Christian, he would have been a great saint with our Lord Jesus Christ for the good and pure life that he led. End quote. He goes on to ruminate about all sorts of other things regarding religion in India, including a discussion about the yogis, who he praised for their abstinence and strong and regimented life. He also discusses reincarnation and karma, things he explains but doesn't seem to quite get on board with. But no matter what he discusses, he is respectful toward the land's religions, in particular Buddhism. As I said last time, it just seems that he is a little bit older and a little bit wiser, which made him a more open and accepting person. Now, that doesn't mean he suddenly abandoned Christianity. Marco never wavers from the belief that Christianity is the one and true religion. In fact, in Mabar, he made a pilgrimage to a site, believed to be where St. Thomas, one of the apostles, was buried. He even said that he brought some of the earth from around the grave back to Venice with him and used it to heal many people. So, Marco and the fleet would eventually sail around the southern tip of India and head up the western coast of the country. It was a slow and gradual progress. It was also, Marco reports, an environment that was brutally hot and humid. He said that the water was so hot that you could put an egg in it and it would cook. Also, the Arabian Sea, the waters between India and the Middle East region, were infested with pirates. Ships were forced to travel in convoys of 20 and 30 for protection. But that did not stop the pirates from swarming over any vessel that strayed from the pack. Marco's fleet was not spared from this sort of harassment. The pirates, Marco notes, were mostly Muslims, and despite Marco's openness toward other religions, he never embraces Islam in any way. Muslims are the bad guy in the book, and the fact that Christianity and Islam were in conflict at that moment was probably a big reason for this. No one, including Marco, wanted to portray them in a favorable light. So, along the coast of the Arabian Sea, the fleet would go, reaching Kesh, and then finally Ormuz. It had taken the fleet 18 months to reach their destination, and Marco reports that only 18 of the original 600 passengers survived the voyage. This included Marco, his uncle and father, and Princess Kokachin. Now, this attrition is hinted at in our story, but how it all exactly happened isn't fully explained, and there's some skepticism about the numbers. It's almost certain that some of the ships and passengers perished along the way. Disease and malnutrition were always an issue on long sea voyages, especially in a tropical environment. And then there were the pirates, plus the monsoons. These things would have chipped away at the fleet's numbers. And another thing, perhaps some of these ships and the passengers never intended to travel all the way to Hormuz. Some may have peeled off along the way on their own trade and diplomatic missions. It is also kind of suspicious that of the 18 survivors, all of the stars of our program, 
the Polos, and the Princess survive the affair. This seems manufactured, like a Star Trek where everyone gets captured except Captain Kirk and Spock and McCoy. It just doesn't seem right. It might be that the lower number was an exaggeration by Marco or Rusticello to again pump up the greatness of the Europeans and or to try to make this part of the journey more thrilling. No matter, the Polos had made it to Persia and delivered the princess. So, you would think that wraps up this part of our story, but you would be wrong, and that is because King Argon, the intended of the princess, was dead, likely poisoned by his enemies. This left the Polos to try to figure out what to do next. After all, they couldn't just leave the princess. Thus, they entered into talks with members of the royal court and struck a deal for Kokachin to wed Argon's son, Gazan. And with that done, everything is settled, right? Well, not quite. Kokachin was a teenage princess in a foreign land, and she dreaded losing the Polo family. They were probably the only people that she knew. And thus, she begged them to stay, and they would, at least for a time. But eventually, as Kokachin settled into her new life, Marco and his father and uncle would make noise about taking leave. They were, after all, still emissaries for the Great Khan, and had official documents to deliver to the kings and leaders of Europe. Thus, after staying nine months with Kokachin, the three Polos would finally leave. The princess reportedly wept at their departure. Kokachin, by the way, would die a few years later, in 1296, probably poisoned. So Marco and his family headed into the final stretch of their journey home. But it would not be uneventful. They had to cross a wide swath of the Middle East to reach the Black Sea, a distance of more than 1,200 miles. Thankfully, the Polos still had their golden Mongol passports. And while this land was not directly administered by Kublai Khan, he was still greatly respected by the local lords. No one dared defy an imperial passport issued directly by the great Khan. Thus, Marco said that they would be cared for along the way, and even once given 200 horsemen as escorts. But the further west they went, the less the passport held sway. And then, as they journeyed toward the Black Sea, the Polos would receive the news that the great Kublai Khan had died in February of 1294 at the age of 78. And with that news, the Polos understood that they would never be able to return to Asia, even if they had wanted to. The moment was probably bittersweet for Marco and his family. I mean, they were probably relieved in some ways. Their promise to return to Kambalik was now void. However, the Khan had been a mentor and a protector to all the Polos, and his influence had given them experiences that few in the world could equal. Marco's descriptions of the Khan and his court, written decades later, clearly shows his respect, and even affection, that he held toward the great Khan. In some ways, the death of Kublai Khan severed a unique east-west link. There had been this bond between the Polos and the Great Khan, and it allowed both sides a view of each other's world. But the death of Kublai Khan and the unrest in the other Mongol kingdoms meant such a relationship was likely impossible going forward, which was a shame. So with the death of Kublai Khan, his grandson, Timur, took the Mongol throne. Per custom, Kublai Khan's body was taken in a great funeral caravan to the Kentai Mountains in Mongolia, where it would be buried, reportedly near his grandfather, Genghis Khan. The site of his tomb has never been found. And with that, the Poles were free of any commitment to the Mongol Empire and would continue on, reaching the city of Trebizond on the northeast corner of the Black Sea. This port city was the capital of a small Byzantine kingdom, and it was here that disaster would strike. Their Mongol passports were now, without question, of no use to them. And here, despite all their best precautions, the Polos would be robbed by local officials. They would lose upwards of three-quarters of their treasure. What they saved was likely sewn into the hems of some garments. This was a devastating moment, and one that is not actually recounted by Marco in his book. The story would not come out until it was mentioned in the will of Maffeo Polo many years later. 
Anyhow, the Poles would eventually depart Trebizond and take a ship to Constantinople and then another to Negropont in Greece, before finally catching another vessel to Venice, arriving there in 1295. It had been 24 years and at least 15,000 miles, but the Poles were home. It had been one of the most epic and well-known journeys in the history of humanity. Now, as you can imagine, even with the Poles returning to Venice, there is a lot more to talk about in our story. We will do this in the following fashion. First, we will conduct a quick review of the key people, outside of Marco Polo, involved in our story. Second, we will then talk about the rest of the life of Marco Polo. Third, as we finish up with Marco, we will discuss his book, as it is so important to his legacy. Fourth, I will serve up a few tidbits about Marco Polo, his journey, his influence on the world, and in popular culture. And finally, I will wrap it all up with a few final observations regarding Marco Polo and his amazing journeys. So let's start by talking about some of the people and places we encountered in our story. The first people I want to mention are Marco's father and uncle, Niccolo and Maffeo Polo. Now, despite losing much of their treasure to corrupt officials in Trebizond, the family came home with a considerable fortune. Niccolo Polo would find that the wife he had married prior to departing for China a second time had had a son, naming him Maffeo. This would have been Marco's half-brother. Marco's father, like his brother, would have been around 65 when he returned to Venice. He would not live much longer, dying sometime before 1300. We do not know the exact date. Marco's uncle, Maffeo Polo, would live another 10 years, dying in 1310 at around the age of 80. He would be a key business partner with Marco during these latter years. None of the Polos, by the way, would ever venture far from Venice for the rest of their lives. One story I want to mention about Maffeo is that his wife had thrown out some of the Mongol clothing he had brought back to Venice. Unbeknownst to her, there was a fortune in gems sewn into the hem of one of these garments. Maffeo would eventually find the garment being worn by a beggar. He would get the item back, and lucky for him, all the gems would still be there. Now, before I talk about Marco Polo and his final years, I do want to mention one other entity, and that is the Mongol Empire. The truth is that even as Marco was on his way home, the great empire of Kublai Khan was coming apart at its seams. We are talking about a realm that was simply too large and unwieldy to maintain. The Mongols in Russia would become the Golden Horde. In Persia, Ghazan, the man who had eventually married Prince Kokachin, would convert to Islam, dramatically changing the makeup of the Ilkhanate. These and other areas of the empire would break up and emerge as their own political entities. In China, the Yuan dynasty would continue under Timur, the grandson of Kublai Khan, but he would die in 1307. A succession of Khans would follow over the next 60 years, but corruption and complacency crept into the empire, and in 1368, the Yuan dynasty came to an end as the Mongol elites fled Kambalik and retreated to the north. They would be replaced by the Ming dynasty. And with that, our side characters are wrapped up, so let us talk about the remaining years of Marco Polo. As I mentioned, the entire Polo clan came back from Europe with a lot of money, but the men were curiosities, in some ways more Mongol than European. In fact, for a time, Marco and his father and uncle would still wear their Mongol garments around the city. But in time, the three men would settle into their lives in Venice. As discussed in our first episode, Marco would participate in the war with Genoa in the late 1200s. He would get captured, and while in custody, recount his story to Rustocello de Pisa. This result was the travels of Marco Polo. Marco would be freed in 1299 and return to Venice and build a great home. He would eventually give up his Mongol dress and habits and prove to be a shrewd and successful businessman. Marco would get married to a woman named Donata, the daughter of another wealthy Venetian merchant, in 1312. The couple would go on to have three daughters. 
As Marco got older, he became immensely wealthy. He inherited some of his uncle Maffeo's estate when he died, as he had no children, and he would also inherit his half-brother's estate when he died, also without children, and his wife had brought a sizable dowry to their marriage. This meant that Marco's fortune grew and grew with each passing year. However, records and sources indicate that Marco became litigious and perhaps greedy. Some scholars say that he became obsessed with wealth. Legal documents show that he sued many people, and while he loaned money to friends and relatives, he always required it to be repaid with interest. Now, through all of this, there is one thing about Marco Polo that will remain consistent, and that is he will never stop telling tales of China and the Great Khan. He would become a legend for his storytelling. As we have said, his nickname became Emilione. Some joke that it meant a million lies, but it is usually associated with him because he had so many stories and his tales had such huge numbers involved. Until he died, Marco continued to tell these stories of his time in Asia. He is said to have carried copies of his book with him to give to important people that he met. In fact, Marco would never stop adding to his story even after Rusticello put it to paper, and thus the travels of Marco Polo changed and was added to right up to the day he died. And speaking of death, on cue, let us call in the Grim Reaper one last time in our narrative. As Marco Polo aged, he would get sick and slowly fade away. He would eventually die on January 8, 1324. He was 69 or 70 years old. In his will, he left his fortune to his family members. Amongst the items that he left was one of the golden paisas issued to him by Kublai Khan, as well as some Buddhist prayer beads, which he called a Buddhist rosary. There was also a headdress with gems and pearls. Some scholars believe that this had been given to him by Princess Kokachin to thank him for his service to her, but we do not know for sure. And finally, in his will, Marco granted freedom to Peter, his Mongol slave. Wait, what? Mongol slave? Where did that come from? Well, this is one of those weird things that pops up in our story. It's one of those what-the-heck moments. Let me explain. In Marco's book, he makes no mention of having any sort of bonded servants or slaves. It is only here, after his death, that this Peter is mentioned. In all likelihood, Marco had had slaves throughout his career in China, but we do not know that for sure. We can only surmise as it was a common thing. And this specific man, Peter, we know nothing about, except that he was freed on Marco's death. This man may have been acquired at any point in Marco's time in China, or even on the return journey. He could have even been given to Marco by Kokachin while in Persia. Again, we just don't know. This doesn't really change much about our story, but I don't want to ignore it, as it is one of those ugly things that people just don't want to talk about. Anyhow, with that, we wrap up the life of Venetian merchant and explorer Marco Polo. Next, I briefly want to talk about his book and his legacy. So, as discussed, Marco's book was written by Rusticello da Pisa. It was titled as both Emilione and the Book of Marvels of the World, but is most commonly known as The Travels of Marco Polo. At this time, books had to be hand-copied, so every version of the book would essentially be different. Some of this was intentional. A scribe might be instructed to remove or alter something that the church might find objectionable, such as the stuff that deals with sexuality or religion. Or it might be a mistake, especially as the book was translated. Translating a book is often an inexact process, and even more so in the 14th century. This means that the book had a lot of different versions, and we really don't know exactly which is the most faithful to Marco's original. No matter, The Travels of Marco Polo was an eye-opener for the people of Europe. It gave the Western world a peek behind the curtain of Asia, and what they saw was pretty astounding. And while Marco did describe a lot of unbelievable things, we should note that many of those things would eventually come to pass in Europe, including paper money, eyeglasses, coal, and gunpowder. 
Also, the book would prove to be an inspiration to cartographers and explorers and dreamers for several centuries. Mapmakers would use Marco's book to flesh out their own creations, and in the halls of power in Europe, men and women read the stories and dreamed about reaching the fabled lands of China and India. It helped convince the Portuguese to push their way around Africa and to the Far East. It inspired explorers such as Columbus and Magellan to risk their lives and push across not just one, but two oceans. Christopher Columbus traveled with his own copy of Marco's book, a copy that has survived to this day. It is pretty cool, as you can see Columbus's handwritten notes in the margins of the book. By the way, both Columbus and Magellan had believed that they would find a great Khan still ruling China once they finally reached the fabled land. Now, there were many who doubted what Marco wrote, and for good reason. They pointed out the obvious exaggerations and outright lies, and for a time, some asked why Marco Polo, if he had actually been to China, never mentioned the Great Wall. Well, the answer to that is that the epic Great Wall of China we are familiar with wasn't constructed until the Ming Dynasty, almost a century after Marco had been in the region. In the end, most scholars and historians believe that Marco did go to China, and the things he wrote about were mostly true. Now, I do want to mention something about Marco Polo's journey that is sometimes brought up when people talk about Ibn Battuta, a Bourbon Moroccan scholar and explorer in the 14th century. Battuta wrote a book talking about his journeys, which were far more expansive and extensive than Marco Polo's. He went throughout North Africa and all the way to China, and thus many wonder why Marco Polo is so famous, but not Battuta. The big reason Marco Polo is so well known is that his book was published in his lifetime, right around 1300. Ibn Battuta's writings were not collected and published until the 1800s, and while his writings are fantastic, the mysteries of the Far East were no longer mysteries by the time Batuta's work was published, unlike Marco Polo's book. Someday we will do a series on Batuta. Like Marco, he was an epic traveler, but the effect he had on the world just wasn't as pronounced due to the delay in the publication of his works. So with that said, I want to give you some tidbits about Marco Polo and his legacy and influence on our culture, even to this day. I will start by debunking an old myth. In the 1900s, stories emerged that Marco Polo had brought pasta from China and introduced it to Europe. This is not true. Pasta had been around Europe for more than a thousand years before Marco. This story is generally believed to have originated with American marketers making the tale up in the 1920s as a fun way to promote and sell their products. Next thing I want to mention is that Marco Polo has been remembered in many, many ways, of which I will name a few of note. First, there is a sheep named after Marco, called, appropriately enough, the Marco Polo Sheep. Their habitat is the Palmyra Mountains, which Marco crossed on his journey into Asia. Second, there have been ships named after him, including one in 1851, a three-masted clipper built in St. John, New Brunswick. It would be the first ship to sail around the world in under six months. Third, the airport in Venice is called the Venice Marco Polo Airport. I like how there is a lot of traveler tie-ins on some of these. Fourth, there are many books and movies about Marco Polo. Hollywood made a film in 1937 called The Adventures of Marco Polo. It starred Gary Cooper as our Venetian merchant. And frankly, while it's mildly entertaining, it really isn't very good. There have been other movies and documentaries and miniseries made about Marco, including a Netflix show that ran a couple of years ago. I have not seen the show, which focuses on Marco's early years in China. It is supposed to be great looking, but the reviews were not particularly kind to it. Also, there have been board games about Marco Polo, and the Uncharted video game series uses his 1292 voyage from China as a backdrop. And finally, we can't forget the Marco Polo game. Traditionally, it's sort of a tag game played in the water, but it can be adapted to pretty much anywhere. You say Marco, I say Polo, and the chase is on. 
So there you go. That is the life and legacy of Marco Polo. His story is unique. I think the big reason is that he didn't go to China to explore, but instead went as a traveler. He was not bound by king and country. This allowed him to go wherever the winds or the Khan took him. This made his explorations and his descriptions more of a travelogue. He describes the people and the customs and the important stuff he finds, plus the local history, as a way to entertain. At times, Marco's story veers off into the fantastic, as he tries to thrill his audience more than educate them. Also, in some areas, his story is lacking. He glosses over really important things. He ignores timelines, and he says he's going to talk about something, and then never brings it up again. It can be kind of maddening. But on the flip side, his descriptions are often overflowing with color and detail, things that give us a window into an amazing and exotic world. In the end, I think of Marco Polo more as a traveler than an explorer. In fact, his name is almost synonymous with traveling. For the West, his writings opened up a world that few people ever imagined. It was astounding and extraordinary and unbelievable, and it would change the world. And with that in mind, the last thing I want to mention about Marco Polo is something that he said late in his life. When someone asked him about all the stories he had told, he didn't deny them or say that he was just exaggerating. In fact, Marco Polo doubled down, literally. He said, quote, Friends, I have not written down half of those things that I saw. End quote. And that, my friends, is what is so amazing about Marco Polo. The detail, the descriptions. It was all part of one of the most epic journeys ever recorded in history. So that is it. I hope you've enjoyed our series on the legendary Marco Polo. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.